Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. In a world that has not loved Christ, and yet each time suffering and struggle comes on our lives, what I've noticed about us, all of us, myself included, we, we show genuine surprise. We think, and we ask aloud questions like, how can this be happening to me? I think that's a silly question. It's a natural question, but it's a silly one because it's supposed to happen. It's just part of life. And I want you to, to understand, you know, you, you probably are familiar with the, um, that, that bumper sticker. I can't r- repeat it literally because there's a swear word in it, but it rhymes with, it happens. Okay? You guys know which bumper sticker I'm talking about? It happens. And... Uh, the, the theology or the, the feeling of that bumper sticker or slogan is simply this. Life is totally random. The universe is impersonal. Junk happens to people and there's nothing you can do about it and no one cares about you. And so the only thing to do is accept it and move on with your life. Now, I can accept that last part, the accepting it and moving on. But it's the randomness and the impersonal purposelessness of suffering which I disagree with. And so Peter says some important things in this verse to help us expect and then to accept the suffering that comes to our lives. And the first, obviously, is this. It says, Beloved. Here's what he's really saying. No matter how bad things might be in your life, don't you ever forget that you are the beloved of God. Your suffering cannot lessen the amount that God loves you. And the funny thing is when we suffer, we so often are tempted to think, Has God forgotten about me? Does he not love me anymore? He seems to be loving everybody else. Why doesn't he love me? And the thing to remember is no matter how bad your circumstances are, you are always the beloved of God. That is the sense in which he addresses you while you're going through your hard times. And he says very simply, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. See, when we say strange, what we're saying, it's, it's the Greek word xenos, from which we get xenophobia. It's like the, the fear of foreigners. We act sometimes as if suffering is a foreign thing to us. Like it doesn't belong here. And so our first response is to find some way out of the suffering, because suffering shouldn't be a part of my life. It's part of life in the third world. It's part of life in the life of those people who are starving to death with flies buzzing on their faces and their bellies are distended. For them, that's part of life. But I work hard. I make a good living. I live in the United States of America. Suffering is not supposed to be a part of my story. But we sometimes make the mistake of treating it as though it were a foreign element when, in fact, God says it is a necessary part of our lives. He calls them fiery trials, and the language I think he's trying to show us, it's the same language used to describe the process by which metals are refined. Who knows how a metal is refined? I think we're very familiar with this, right? You apply extreme heat, and then you melt the metal down to a liquid form, and all the impurities and the junk, they call it dross, it floats to the top, and you skim it off, and then you cool the metal again, and when it reconstitutes itself, you have a purer, stronger, cleaner metal. That's the way you purify metal. And what God is saying to us is that suffering in our life is not random or purposeless, but it has a purpose, and its purpose is to refine us. 
Now, I know that's a very familiar thing. This is probably the 10th time you sat in a church hearing these words. And yet, when you suffer, I guarantee you, you will not be looking for the purpose in it. I mean, most people I talk to, that's the last thing they're thinking about. All they think about is, poor me, why me, how can I be done with this? And we fail to find the purpose in suffering. How many of you have been a student in your life? How many of you are students now? So I was thinking about this because my children complain incessantly about school. How attractive would it be if you could go to a school where there were no tests, no exams, no grades, no GPA? You just go to class, hang out with friends, and then you graduate. Everyone graduates. Now that's attractive, but the truth is it's doubtful you would get an education. Because if it isn't tested, you really never know what you know. Here's the thing about tests. They are not just some artificial means by which we, get, we, we factor a GPA for you. A test is actually an academic service. It's a way of saying to you, we take your education seriously and we want to give you an occasion to find out what really is inside that noggin of yours. You can lay claim to all kinds of things, but suddenly you wonder if you know it. Have you guys ever watched that show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And isn't it funny how you, you, you're pretty sure you know the answer, but when you're on national television and you're afraid you give the wrong answer, there's a lot of pressure. So, you know, how many planets are in the solar system? You're thinking, I'm pretty sure it's nine, but can I say that and be wrong on public television? A test is a good occasion to ask you, do you really have it? Do you really know it? Or do you only think or feel that you have it? I think for a lot of us, we have failed the testing because we have rejected it. We have tried to get around it when, in fact, the tests of our faith are meant to show you, do you really have a relationship with God that can sustain you through the tough times? Do you really know Him, or do you just think that you know Him? We should welcome the tests, expect them, because they are God's service to us to reveal the substance of that relationship that we claim with Him. And so the next time you're suffering... Instead of rejecting it, learn to expect it and accept it. You're not going to have a life that is suffering free. No amount of money in the world can shelter you from it. Be, be mindful of that. Let me give you another verb that will help you in times of suffering. And that is exult. When's the last time you used the verb exult in a sentence? It's not a common word, but I think it's a really good word to communicate what it is that Peter is saying here. But rejoice. And I wish that somehow we all knew Greek because that word rejoice is a very intense word. It's intense rejoicing. I guess the word exult. If you think about somebody, you know, maybe running through a field in a robe, a flowing robe, just screaming and waving their arms in sheer joy. Or the feeling you get when you get accepted to university or the girl says, yes, I'll marry you. That feeling of total elation. You know what I'm talking about? That feeling is the feeling he's talking about. What an odd feeling to associate with suffering and trials. Here's what Peter is saying. While the rest of the world might be willing to walk with us through the first point and have this fatalistic acceptance or expectation of suffering, we who follow Christ should not have such a neutral view of suffering, but when it comes, there should be an element of great joy with which we meet suffering. Now let me explain or unfold for you how that's even possible because the more I think about it, it seems kind of crazy to say to people, you should be joyful in the midst of your suffering. Well, the important word for understanding this passage is that word insofar. And here, here it is. 
There's going to be great joy, but it's not a present joy you'll feel in the midst of suffering. But there's a great joy in the future when Jesus returns and our faithfulness and our suffering is vindicated and he shows himself to be the true victor over all things. On that day, those who have lined up with him will be greatly joyful and those who did not line up with him will be filled with regret. On the day that Jesus comes back in glory and victory and he's shining over all the earth, that day the people who fought for his team will rejoice greatly. And here's the thing, on that day, your joy and identification with him will be insofar as you shared his sufferings. Meaning there is a proportionality or a linkage here. Not everyone will feel the exact same way on the day of Christ's return. But those who stood with him and shared his suffering will enjoy a particularly special kind of celebration. And and maybe that's not very clear to you, so I'm going to give you an illustration that's a little closer to home to help you understand it, okay? So you know that this is a symbol of love and hatred for the same people, right? I mean, it's like you love that team, you hate that team because they break your heart every year. I'm sorry, Sherman. What if, what if this were the year that the Cubbies took it? Let's just imagine, and you're going to have to really imagine here, okay? But let's just imagine with everything we have in us that the Cubs win the World Series this year. And let's pretend that they do it at an away game in the seventh game. What an incredible thing that would be, right? Now, here's what I want you to imagine. Think about, as they're coming back to Chicago, the celebration that will be waiting for them back here. Maybe at Grand Park, maybe in Wrigley Field, maybe just in the open streets of the city, there would be mayhem. Think about that celebration. So let's pretend they they just fill up Wrigley Field with all these fans. There's an incredible party to end all parties. In that crowd will be a lot of different kinds of people. There'll be those kinds of people who have the credentials and the clout to get in, but they really don't care about the Cubs. They just love partying. So they're there because they're always drawn to noise and booze and whatever, and a celebration. Also in that crowd are going to be people who are like me. You know, I don't really care that much about baseball, but if I go to Wrigley Field, I have a good time eating popcorn and peanuts and watching the game and cheering, but I don't know any of the players' names. And you know how it is. Like, there's people like me who are just sort of, they'll watch it, and they're fair-weather fans as well. And then there are those true fans, and we have a bunch of them in this church. I think they're the strongest Christians, too, because you've got to have some serious faith and an ability to suspend disbelief in order to believe that the Cubs are going to win. But there you are, right? They, they are the true believers. They will sit at the game and they will scowl at everyone who's leaving in the, in the bottom of the eighth. You know, you jerks, they might pull it out. And they wait, even though it's 11 to nothing at the top of the night. They wait. You know why? Because they are true fans. They will endure rain and sleet and bad weather and booze and jeers and everything because they believe. So when they're in that place celebrating the Cubs' victory, their joy will be proportionate to the cost that they paid to be a fan. And their experience will be qualitatively different from that of a person like me who's just going, hey, I'm, it's great to be a Chicagoan today. Yoo-hoo. The true fans, they'll know it in their hearts. It was all worth it. And the vindication and the joy will be tremendous. That is the kind of feeling we will enjoy. Those who shared in Christ's suffering and stood with him and did not abandon ship at the first sign of trouble. On the day that Christ is revealed, those who stood with him through thick and thin will share an immense joy 
and celebration. And that thought ought to compel us to embrace our suffering as part of what he embraced as well. You know, suffering helps us identify with Christ because it was such a big part of his life. When you have a shared experience with someone, I think it really goes a long way to help you identify. I wish every man in the world could have one menstrual period just once in their life. That's a crazy sentence right there, but I think it would help us think very differently about PMS jokes and about the way we treat our women. I wish every man could give birth to just one grapefruit, not even a baby, just a grapefruit, okay? (laughs) Think about it. When you share an experience with someone, you really start to understand them. Having children gave me a whole different perspective on my mom and dad. And when you share Christ's suffering there's a kind of identifying with him you can't get any other way. Let me give you another verb when you're suffering. So stop, drop, and roll. You're expecting it, right? You are expecting it. (laughs) I just lost my train of thought here. You are insulting. I'm sorry. I'm trying to think of my next point while I remember the last one. And evaluate it. Here's what it is. Not all suffering is created equal. You know, everybody suffers, but not all suffering is created equal. Here's a story that totally reminds me of that principle. I remember talking with a uh, college student at Cornell when I was preaching at a retreat there. And he was giving me this whole sob story. He said, oh, man, I'm going through such persecution these days. Uh, The dean of my school has got it out for me, and I'm on academic probation, and I'm being persecuted left and right, and I think the Lord is greatly glorified because I have really been going through this. And I'm listening to this kid telling me this story, and I go, hold on a second. Are you a good student? Well, you know, I mean, I'm like kind of below average and stuff. I don't really like studying, but still, I think they're persecuting me. I said, fool! You're not being persecuted, you're being, wake, you're being awakened. You're getting a good slap in the face that you need. Not all suffering is created equal. Just because you are in pain doesn't make your suffering noble or godly. I can't stress that enough to our church. Pain alone doesn't make you noble and it doesn't make you a victim necessarily. For many of us, the majority of pain in our life is self-inflicted. It is the product not of our commitment to righteousness, but our commitment to foolishness and to sinfulness. Think about how much self-inflicted pain is endured by human beings. Cirrhosis of the liver because we couldn't say no to the booze. Lung cancer because we couldn't put out the cigarette. Divorce because we couldn't say no and keep it where it belonged in the home, in the marriage bed. Broken relationship with kids because we didn't invest in them. We just yelled at them all their lives. Think about how much pain in our lives is the product of our stupidity and our sinfulness. And none of that is noble. None of it is redeeming. You cannot glorify God by enduring suffering for your own sinfulness sake. That is something we have to awaken to. And there is no merit badge for that. There is just pain which must be walked through. And so we need to evaluate. When I'm suffering, let me figure out where this suffering is really coming from. Sometimes you'll discover that I'm suffering right now because I am a moron. I can't tell you how many times I've been tempted to complain about myself only to realize, man, I'm the problem. I'm suffering right now because I'm stupido. I'm, uh, I'm an idiot. 
And no one else can be blamed. And when you realize that, the only redeeming value for that suffering is that it should drive you to repentance and reformation. If you don't learn from that, you will, you will be condemned to repeat your foolish history over and over. There's a great saying, young fools grow up to be old fools unless somebody teaches them to be wise. I know plenty of people that are old but not wise. In fact, we had a run-in yesterday at Elijah's homecoming game with somebody who was one of the line coaches and had not grown up very much and was yelling at people and... Uh, swearing at parents and things like that. And it's a very immature kind of outburst. And I realize you can get older without ever getting any smarter. So evaluate your suffering and understand what kind it is. Because the kind of suffering that brings glory to Jesus is not the product of our own folly, but is because we are definitely committed to doing what is right in God's sight in a world that doesn't exactly greet that with friendliness. Now what is all this business about yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, this part, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You know what I see in that? I see what, what Peter is saying is, there's going to come a day of judgment. We live in light of that reality. Every human being will give an account for their lives to a holy God. And on that day, it will be infinitely worse for those who did not trust Jesus than for those who did. If you trust in Jesus now, no matter how bad it gets for you in your earthly life, your eternity will be much better off. And so it gives us a sense of perspective. You might be having a really hard time as a Christian right now, but your present suffering is nothing compared to the suffering that will be endured by those who did not know Jesus Christ. And so get a grip on yourself and realize if you can embrace your suffering and see it in its right perspective, God can so often use your present suffering to make a difference as a witness in somebody else's eternity. The way we wear our suffering broadcasts a very clear message to a watching world about what God is like and what kind of power He makes available to normal human beings. And it's so important for us to learn this. Your present suffering, if worn to the glory of God, can bring great change for somebody else's eternity. I think that's very much what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote these words in his second letter to the Corinthians. All of these things are for your benefit, he wrote. And as God's grace brings more and more people to Christ, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are quite small and won't last very long. Yet, they produce for us an immeasurably great glory that will last forever. It's so important to evaluate the real meaning or purpose of our suffering. And a lot of times the reason we suffer is not just to purify us or to test us, but it is that the way we wear it is a testimony to people who need to see God. Our suffering, properly worn, can make a difference in somebody else's eternity. And let me give you a last verb. A last verb. Expect, exult. Why am I doing this? <laughs> Evaluate. <laughs> I keep thinking about my next point. I don't think of the last one. I'm sorry. 
And then there's entrust. You might be wondering why I have a football there. I couldn't think of another picture. I kept thinking of all these pictures I could put to help you understand entrusting. And I think I chose a football for a reason. I've been watching a lot of football lately because my little boy is playing football. That's number 21 on the Bartlett Hawks. That's Elijah Lee. And he's shaping up to be something of a half-decent running back. I think he's going to, once he finds his hands, he's going to be a decent receiver too because he's fast. He's been clocked repeatedly as the fastest kid on his team, and I'm kind of proud of that. And so the joy of this whole development of Elijah as a football player has got me thinking about football all the time. Now, as a running back, one of the things he often have to do is he'll get a ball in practice and he'll carry it, and his coach runs set plays, and it's hilarious because it's just flag football, but they have plays, and the offensive linemen open up holes, and the guy just runs right through. At this level, it just looks kind of silly. It's, it's really cute. But when you get to a higher level, this is what it starts to look like when you have a running play. And I know for a lot of women who don't get into football, it just looks like a waste of time. It's like, how can they go hike and then two seconds later, all those men are in a big pile. Why does he just run right around them? I don't understand. <laughs> Raise your hand if you're a woman, you've ever thought that, right? I mean, and to the untrained eye, that's what it looks like. Why is that idiot running right into the fray? Why doesn't he just run around it? Well, the thing is, when that running back runs right into it, he's doing his job. Because the play that's called for is that a hole is supposed to be opened up in the line by the offensive lineman, and that guy's supposed to find that hole and run through it whether it's there or not. That's the crazy thing about a good linebacker. He sees bodies, but he just keeps running because coach said, you run through the five hole, and that's where he's going to run. Now, here's the thing. Everything depends on the offensive lineman, doesn't it? Once in a while, you get a brilliant running back who sees the hole, and he kind of does his juke, and he's got some gift from God, and he runs actually around, but that's called highlight film because it doesn't happen very often. Nine times out of ten, that fancy pants is going to get jacked, right? He's going to get hit hard because you can't make out the play on the fly. Coach calls that play, you run through the hole that's supposed to be there, and a majority of the time, that hole will at least be partially open. A running back needs to do what he has to do, but he has to entrust himself to a lot of 400-pound men on the line, who are supposed to open up that hole, and it better be there, I better see daylight, because if I don't, if you haven't done your job, I'm going to get smacked hard, and I'm going to find myself at the bottom of a pile of very heavy men. That's a funny scene, I don't know why that one guy's hand is on the other, <laughs> not sure about that, it's a little shady, but here's the thing, right, here's the thing, I think life is a lot like a football running play. God gives us what seems like just a pileup, a mess up ahead, and He says to us, your job, don't run around it, don't get all fancy on me, run right through it. The most direct path is the one right through your troubles. Trouble and suffering are not things to be skirted around or run from, they are things to be walked right through. You can't avoid it all for the rest of your life. Sometimes the only thing you can do is run right through it and hope that there's an open hole. And so I guess it really boils down to a matter of trust. Do you really trust your big offensive lineman in the sky? You know what I'm talking about. In case you're sleeping, it's God. Do you trust that though in front of you all you see is large butts, God is going to open up a hole and you're going to run through it at the 11th hour. Do you believe that with all your heart? See, people who don't trust God really stink at suffering. 
Suffering ruins them because all they see is the, the suffering and they don't see the salvation. They don't believe that there's anyone on this earth powerful enough to get them to the other side of that. I'm going to tell you right now that in the end, how you wear your suffering is absolutely a matter of trust. And if you don't know how to trust yourself to God, you'll never, ever know how to get through trials. Isn't it interesting that in this passage, it calls God a faithful creator. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Do you realize that this is the only place in the New Testament where God is referred to as creator? That's an Old Testament word, isn't it? I mean, God the creator. Only in this place is God called creator. And I think that's very important. Because it's been my observation that when people suffer, they start to feel sorry for themselves and they kind of drift away from that intimacy with God because the question that naturally arises is, does God care about me? Does He even know I'm down here? Have you ever been going through a hard time and you seriously wondered if God had just forgotten you? That's a really strange feeling to have. And that's why the word creator is so reassuring. You are not just somebody who's out here like a vast sea of faces and names. You are someone God made. See, none of us were just born. We were made. Every last one of us. I don't know how you feel about your life or your existence, but one thing you should know is none of us is an accident. I think that's why Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Life, is so popular. There are some things he says in there that are so profoundly true and so reassuring that compel you to keep reading. I want you to see how he begins chapter 2 of The Purpose Driven Life. If you've never, if you've never read the book, I would highly recommend that you pick it up some time and glance at it. Here's how chapter 2 opens up. You are not an accident. Your birth was no mistake or mishap, and your life is no fluke of nature. <laughs> I once heard a kid go, oh, my younger brother, he's an accident. <laughs> I guess they're repeating the words at home. No kid's an accident is what Pastor Warren is saying. Your parents may not have planned you, but God did. He was not at all surprised by your birth. In fact, he expected it. Long before you were conceived by your parents, you were conceived in the mind of God. He thought of you first. It is not fate, nor chance, nor luck, nor coincidence that you are breathing at this very moment. You are alive because God wanted to create you. And the Bible says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. I really love that. I think what it reminds us of is the same thing Peter is trying to remind us of. When you're going through trials... Remember that who you're entrusting yourself to is the faithful one who made you. And God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't create people just to discard them into oblivion. Your, your trials have a purpose because God has a purpose for you. Your suffering has meaning because God still loves you and knows your name. And he is still working to shape you and make you into who you're supposed to be. It is so important that you remember that. When you're getting ready to walk right through the middle of your trials, the one thing you're going to need to remember is that you've got to entrust yourself to somebody to open up a hole in that line. And you've got to know that the God you're trusting is worthy of that trust. Like I said before, we go over it again and again and again. Stop Drop and roll. I pray to God not a single one of us will ever be on fire in that literal sense during the course of our lives. But I know that when it happens, 
probably the last thing you'll think of to do is stop, drop, and roll. Have you ever seen the movies when someone's on fire? What do they do? Ah! They run around flailing their arms, getting more on fire. And everyone around them says, hey, stop, drop, and roll. That's something I want to say to you because I believe some of you might be right in the middle of it right now, aren't you? You're going through some really, really bad times. And what I want to say to you is, stop, drop, and roll. Train your mind to know what to do when the trials come. Let's review. I need this review as much as you, evidently. Expect it. Don't act so surprised or rejected as a foreign element in your life. It's supposed to be there, and its purpose is to reveal what's really there beneath the surface. You know, some people make a shallow response to the gospel, and tests, trials, reveal whether what we have is a chosen subculture and lifestyle or a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't you want to know which one you have? Don't you want to know? What, what is that? I, th- I thought I put something fancy in my slide. The second verb is exult. No one's supposed to like the suffering now. You'd have to be Looney Tunes to say, I rejoice in my present suffering. That's wrong. But I rejoice in what my present suffering will mean for me one day when Jesus returns and is victorious and is vindicated. I want you to hold that thought of the Cubs coming home with victory in your mind always and think about what kind of fan are you? Are you a fair weather fan? Do you just like a crowd and excitement? Or are you here because you belong to Jesus Christ? I can't be the judge of that. No one knows that but you and God. And trials bring that out. Receive the trials of your life with great joy, knowing that they help you identify with Jesus. And one day when he comes back, you will be found to have stood with him on his side of the line. We're also to evaluate. Admitting that not all our suffering, and perhaps for many of us, most of our suffering is not the kind God is glorified by. And so when we suffer for our own foolishness sake, we should be paying attention and learning. Don't argue with your friends. Don't get all defensive. Don't be like, who are you to tell me? Are you perfect? Uh-uh. You know, don't get that whole neck-shaking thing like, like you're above reproach. When you're suffering for your foolishness sake and your friends are telling you that, accept it, receive it, learn from it so you can change because that's the kind of suffering that's just wasted. There's no redeeming value to that kind of suffering at all. Think also about the fact that if you receive your suffering and wear it well, God might use it to change somebody else's eternity because of the witness that that suffering represents. And finally, entrust yourself to God. God says to you the most direct route in suffering is to run right through the middle of it. Now, how are you going to do that unless you're able to trust that somehow God will open up a hole? You can try to run around it. I bet you you get smacked down a lot. You can try to trust yourself. Juke everybody out. Go to the side. But God says, just walk with me right to the middle of it. Don't be afraid of suffering. I'll carry you through it, but walk right through the middle, trusting that I'm going to open up a hole to the other side. Talk to anybody who's been through a bad trial and seen God be faithful, and they'll tell you it's always worth it to walk down the middle. And God opens up holes all the time. Would you join with me in bowing your head and just pray about that 
And I'm going to ask while I'm praying if Pastor Frank and Young and Chris will come to the front and help me prepare the elements for our communion. You know, suffering is not fun. I don't like it really at all. And I know you don't either. I just don't see how we're going to get through this life avoiding it. We live in a fallen world as fallen people, but we serve a holy God. And if all those statements are true, then trouble is going to come somehow. So when that trouble comes, what happens to us? I'm not saying what happens around us or to us on the outside. What's happening in us? How are we being affected by that? I have sympathy for those who suffer. I I I really do. And none of this message is intended to say, oh, just get over it. You're being a baby. That's not it at all. Suffering is hard. But somehow, God can actually use it and get glory from it. And a lot of that has to do with how we meet it. And so, I want to ask you to just respond to the Lord. How will you meet your next trial? Let's not waste any time arguing with God over it, but just expect it, you know? Expect it to come. And when it comes, let's remember that one day we will stand with Jesus vindicated and every act of faithfulness will be rewarded. Let's not be fair-weather fans. Let's be true fans. Let's learn from the mistakes that lead us to wasted suffering. And let's allow God to use our holy suffering for His great purposes. People might be saved because we wore our holy suffering well. And you know what? Through it all, you can hear that counsel because God promises to go ahead of you. You can entrust your soul to God because He will open up a hole in the middle of that mess for you to run through. He always does. So I'll leave it to you for a moment before we have communion to just respond to the Lord and ask Him to make you ready to stop, drop, and roll the next time your life is on fire. And respond to Him the way you feel led. And then I'll bring us into time of communion in just a few minutes. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord, our honest and humble admission before you is this. We know what to do, but we just confess that we don't really suffer very well. A lot of times the suffering crushes us. It doesn't build us up. And so we pray that you make a difference in our life through the word that was given to us today. The next time our trials come, help us to be ready so that through it all, somehow, you would get glory and we would become stronger. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fitting that we do communion after a message like this because communion is one of the things that reminds us that our salvation and our hope is the result of someone else's great suffering. It's really important to remember that we're not Christians because we don't drink and smoke and all that. And even if you do, you can still be a Christian. We're Christians because Jesus paid an incredibly, impossibly high price to release us from our guilt and give us His righteousness. It's mercy 
There is no other component. Our good deeds are not a sprinkle of salt to add flavor to that. There is nothing we bring to this table. Here, what we eat symbolizes the fact that it's only Jesus and what He did that makes us Christian. That's what we reaffirm every single time. But there's a second component. As a result of remembering that, we also then line ourselves up with Jesus to say, if you would have your body broken and your blood shed, let it be no different for me. If you call me to suffer, I will do it for the one who suffered for me. We identify by sharing in Christ's sufferings, even as we share in His joy and in His life. Does that make sense to you? So these are the things which we remember when we take communion. And here's what I'm going to ask us to do. Just starting with the front row, I'm going to ask you to come through down the middle aisle. Those in the balcony, you can start making your way down to the lobby to come join us for this. And just get the elements, go around and sit down and hold them until everyone's been served. And then I'll invite us to take them together. Now, I should also let you know that communion is really only for those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, this is not something for you, nor will it be very meaningful for you. It'll just be a piece of bread and a small cup of juice. What this does is it reminds us and affirms what brought us into Christ's family. And I'm going to ask you, if you haven't made that decision for Jesus, without any, any uh, sense of uh, apology or anything, until you're ready to make that decision, this isn't for you. You can just kind of uh, walk through, but just you know, beg off and say, I, I don't need it. And that's okay. All right? We un- will un- totally understand that. But we'll look forward to the day when you're ready to make that decision and join us at the Lord's table. All right? So, I'm going to give you a minute because the Bible teaches us to prepare our hearts before we take communion. A couple things. One is, have you trusted Jesus alone to be your Savior? And number two, are you united in love to the people in this room under the banner of Christ's love? Check those things and then I'll invite you from the mic to start coming forward, okay? I'm going to invite you now from the front and moving towards the back into the balcony to come to the front and receive the elements and then take them back and be seated. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, our Lord took bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, This is my blood spilled for you. Do this every time you drink of it in remembrance of me. We do this because Jesus asked us to do it in memory of what he has done for us so that we never forget why we call ourselves Christians. And as we do it today, may there be a fresh remembrance in each of our hearts that it's only Jesus who makes us righteous and nothing we have done. I invite you to take the elements together. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for doing for us freely what we could never have earned or purchased. And if we've ever forgotten why we are called Christian, then let us remember it now. 
It's not the missions trips and the small groups attended, the acts of kindness we've given to others. But it is the work of Jesus Christ, bloody and painful, a body torn to shreds, blood freely flowing over the pavement. Your pain for our eternal gain. We remember today that this is the gospel. And we give you all the thanks and all the credit for it. And we acknowledge before you today as a church that we are with Christ only because Christ saved us. Let us never forget. And as we remember your suffering, give us the power and the grace to endure our own suffering well. And to honor you somehow through it. And to emerge more in love with Jesus, stronger in our, st- our souls and in our hearts than before. Especially give a measure of grace and mercy to those in our church right now who are going through terrible trials. Lord, help them to endure it. Give them strength and show your love to them. And pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.